Welcome to ACNR's second Neuro Voices podcast. I'm Rachel Hansford, ACNR's publisher, and in this podcast, Sri Kadali continues our conversation with our founding editor, Professor Roger Barker. Roger tells us the story of his career, starting with his school days, and shares who and what motivates him. Whether you're a trainee looking for inspiration or simply interested to hear Roger's views on neurology over the past few decades, we hope you enjoy. So, Roger, welcome to the second half of our podcast. And oh, it's, well, going to be, it's going to be all about you. <laughs> oh, dear. My wife would hate this. I've talked enough about myself as it is on a good day. So you're a world-famous consultant neurologist and an expert in Parkinson's disease, particularly in the stem cell research side of it. I'd like to go back to the beginning, the very beginning. So which school did you go to and how was school for you and what happened after school? And how did you end up being the professor of stem cell neurology? Yeah, so I mean, I went to a school called Habdash School in Elstree, which is in North London, Habs. And so it's got quite a long pedigree and it's part of a whole series of schools. And it's probably most famous because it's near Elstree Studios. So they used to film all sorts of television series around our grounds. So the old Avengers, which most people wouldn't know, was filmed there. So I went there and stayed there for 10 years. So I went at the age of eight. And as I'll say, Mark Manford was in my year. So I've known Mark Manford longer than almost anybody else on this planet apart from <laughs> a few relatives uh, and there was another chap with who I did my A-levels with called Dave Peterson so we ended up in a group so when we finished at school there were 13 of us doing our A-levels in one class Mark Manford myself and a chap called Dave Peterson who became a neurosurgeon so three out of the 13 ended up in neurology or neurosurgery which is <laughs> quite a percentage given how many people do that in this country so the school was great in the sense that it was very academic probably the most academic competitive place I've ever been in my entire life regardless of what happened to me after that it was very much driven by either being extremely good sporting or very good academically and I was regarded as neither so I was a sort of also ran in all of these and I always remember you know towards the end I decided that I would do I wanted to do medicine and I did medicine because most of my friends were doing medicine so that seemed like the options to do for your A-levels. It seemed like quite a good thing to do because that's what they were doing. That was about as far as the decision went. And then I did better in my A-levels than I thought. But mm-hmm. nowadays, you know, those A-levels wouldn't even get you. You wouldn't be able to apply for medicine with those. So an A and two Bs. But in those days, the people at our school who got straight A's, you could probably count on one hand. And we used to get about 80 people to Oxford and Cambridge every year. And I went to see the careers teacher and I said, I would like to do medicine at Oxford. And I'll never forget it. He looked at me and he paused and he said, well, I suppose somebody's got to do it. So I didn't feel it. I didn't feel particularly positively reinforced by that. <laughs> but anyway, I had a go at it. And I was very fortunate that I got into Oxford to do medicine, which I never expected to. I remember being absolutely delighted by this. I thought I was the cleverest person in the world that I'd got there. And I got this award to go there. And I remember phoning up my grandmother and saying, you know, I've managed to get to Oxford to do medicine. She said, oh, that's marvellous, dear. I'm so pleased for you. I mean, do many people do that? And you suddenly realise that actually, you know, for me, this was a big deal. But but she had no idea what that meant. And also being very Oxford, I always remember it. I hadn't actually been offered a place, but I had been sent a reading list four days before I received a letter saying I'd got in. So I felt fairly confident once I got the reading list for what you need in your first year that I probably had got in. 
And when I then went to Oxford to do medicine, one of the very first people I met was a chap called Patrick Maxwell, who is the Regis Professor of Physics now in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. So I've known him for a very long time. And Patrick was almost the complete opposite to me in the sense that I was amazed to get to Oxford to do medicine and thought I was going to really struggle. And Patrick had come from Eton and he felt they were terribly fortunate to have him as one of their students. And we were at a college called Corpus, which is a very small college in Oxford. And there were only four of us doing medicine in each year. So there were four of us. So Patrick and I sort of paired up. And one of the things that worked very well to our advantage was that Patrick's incredibly clever, much cleverer than I am, but perhaps not as hardworking as I can be. And our main tutor in college played us off against each other. So they got the best out of us because, you know, if I go in, if I went to my tutor and said, well, I, I'm a bit struggling about, you know, resting membrane potential, I don't understand how that works. You go, oh, no, that's fine. No, I mean, some people do find it uh, hard enough. I mean, Patrick found it quite straightforward. But, but anyway, let me, let me explain it to you. And that, of course, would then irritate you that he thought <laughs> he could do it. So, um, so yeah, so then I, I went there and then, and then both of us went to St. Thomas's to do our clinical course, which I didn't particularly enjoy. Because the wonderful thing about Oxford was it was a great formative years for me because I, it, you know, you, you didn't, I didn't struggle as much as I thought. In fact, I rather flourished there and people were very encouraging to let you do whatever you wanted and see whoever you wanted. And <laughs> so I, I just went and did as much as I could. And I loved neuroscience there. And then I went to medical school at Thomas's and it was all about what are the 23 causes of clubbing. I don't know what, I mean, why do you get clubbing? If I understand why you get clubbing, I can tell you what the causes are. Yeah, you don't need to know that. And of course, in medicine, you don't actually need to know why things happen. If someone's breathless, you just need to know a list. Mm. But you do need to understand the principles of it. So I struggled a bit at, at clinical school. But Patrick and I were great colleagues there. And also, it was a very different course in those days. So for two and a half years, you did nothing. And then you did everything in the last six months. <laughs> so, you know, if you'd been sitting on the south coast for two years, you'd have probably been fine. And there were all sorts of apocryphal stories going around that people, some people had got better grades in their attachments mm -hmm. when they hadn't turned up to people who who <laughs> so so yeah so that was my early day so I you know I, I, school was a very competitive place but I did I did all right there Oxford was was a great place for me because it just gave me the confidence and also I just loved the invigorating environment and the people I met clinical school was a struggle I mean I nearly gave up after pre-clinic if I'm honest because having gone up to the look at the clinical school in Oxford we had some talks and the guy was so pompous. I never get him saying, you know, if you've been in, if you if you've done your preclinical in Oxford and you do your clinical in Oxford, you could be no finer doctor. And I just sort of thought <laughs> that. I mean, that is just so pompous. <laughs> so I debated whether to give up and go and do research, but decided that I would like to carry on doing medicine because I like people, mm -hmm. and I thought ultimately I'd like to treat people. I don't want to just treat test tubes. So and clinical school I struggled with, and then after that it was. I just love it and still do. What led you to neurology? So in neurology, I think the thing which really got me going on neurology was there was a great chap at Oxford called Tom Powell, TPS Powell. Most people never heard of him. Mm -hmm. But Tom Powell was a brilliant neuroanatomist from the late 20th century, probably one of Britain's greatest neuroanatomists. And so he described columns in the cortex in the late 1950s. He described most of the connections, uh, you know, corticostriatal connections. So he was absolutely brilliant. And there were two things about him which I loved. One was that he explained it. When you start your second year, I don't know if it's still the case, they teach you neuroanatomy. 
mm-hmm. and everyone says it's impossible. Well, Tom Powell gives a few lectures, thinks this is a piece of cake, can't understand what the problem is here. And then you open a book and think, this is impossible. So his capacity to make it accessible, I found inspiring. And so I loved it. So that was first thing. Second thing was, I thought not much, we don't do much in neurology, it seems to me. We have no idea what's going on, still mm-hmm. don't. But, you know, this is an area which is clearly going to, you know, be a therapeutic challenges for the future. This this is what we can do. Whereas cardiology, which I was quite interested with, he's saying, well, if everything else fails, I'll just stick a new heart in, which isn't really the same. And the future of that lay in prevention, I think. So neurology, I got very excited about how neuroscience could influence neurology. And then he also, the other thing I loved about Tom Powell was that, coming back to what we were saying earlier, I would drop him, you can, there were no such things as emails. So I'd drop him a little note and say, I was interested in this. And then I'll go and talk to him. So you'd go and sit in his office and this is a man, you know, fellow of the Royal Society, you know, brilliant chap. And it, I remember you sat in his office and on his wall, he'd have these box files. And the box files would be, you know, papers and letters he'd had with people. It'd start with J.Z. Young. So these probably don't mean much to people nowadays. But, you know, J.Z. Young's one of the great founding fathers of neurobiology. Then it'd have Vernon B. Mountcastle, who described columns. Then it'd have David Hubel, Torsten mm-hmm. Wiesel. So basically, the entire top shelf of this was all these great, great scientists who had won Nobel Prizes and such like, that, that, that he personally knew and they had huge respect for. And you would just chat to him about things. And he was always very interested mm. just to talk about things. And that was hugely influential on me because I thought he was somebody who, he, had, he didn't have to talk to me at all. I mean, I'm an, I'm an undergraduate medical student. I mean, what have I got to offer? But he was always very interested in my ideas. I had a whole thing about the basal ganglia being involved with pain and selective attention. He was always very happy to do that. So he, he inspired me. And then when I was at medical school, I really didn't, so I didn't really like medical school, but I loved the idea of neurology. So I started going to neurology meetings. And the, one of the very first ones I went to was one of the big grand rounds they had in, in Thomas's Kings and George and guys. And I remember sitting in the background, they presented some case, I can't remember the details of it. And it was David Marsden was chairing it, the late David Marsden. And he said, uh, let's have a discussion about this. Let's start with the um, registrars in the background. So, uh, you, sir, what do you think of it? And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not a registrar. In fact, in fact, I'm a first year clinical student. I just thought I'd come along to try and learn something. He said, doesn't matter. You must have a view on this case. What do you think is going on? And so David Marsden, so Tom Powell was a huge influence on me, and David Marsden was the other one. So he was terrific. So David Marsden, I used to write to him all the time about various ideas I had, and he would always write back. And then when I met him, he would always chat to me about various ideas. And I wanted to be David Marsden professionally. I mean, David Marsden was a professor at 32. Mm-hmm. You know, he published a thousand papers. I mean, he died in his late 50s and won that part mm-hmm. of it. But you know, his professional career, published paper every 10 days, absolutely brilliant man, new neuroscience, new neurology. He knew, you know, if he didn't know the answer, he'd say, I don't know the answer, but we can work it out. And and so so it was undergraduate with Tom Powell that really got me interested in neuroscience. So I decided as a medical student, a clinical student, I would write a textbook on neurology and neuroscience. I thought that would be a good thing to do. That's when I would have the TV series I was mentioning earlier that would go with that. And then I started, you know, started talking to David Marsden. So I was very keen on it. And then I nearly got put off it because when I did neurology for the first time, which was as an SHO at Queen Square, I couldn't believe that we spent our entire ward round working out what set of initials we attached to some patient because what was the point of that? And of course, six months of neurology, I realized that was the most exciting thing is what series of initials could I attach to a patient's condition? <laughs> And there were some great people I met there. So, so Andrew Lees was a huge influence on me. Because Andrew Lees, uh, I mean, we did, we, you know, we did the apomorphine test. It's an SHO. We published that little paper on it, and that was the study we did. And you know, this was in a day when there was no ethics. We just 
got some apomorphine, got some syringes, had a go at it. You know, and, and Andrew was a great one for this sort of, you know, doing whatever whatever you want to do and supporting you at a point in your career when when you were nobody, really. And I think to me, that's a huge, I was hugely impressed by people who believed in you and wanted to encourage you when you were really absolutely nobody to them. And also that's, you know, my big philosophy, everyone's the same. You know, they just have different levels of experience and you should encourage everybody. So he was a great influence on me. And the only other thing I thought about doing was ITU because I did the Thomas's ITU job, which was absolutely terrific with Ron Bradley, who was an absolutely brilliant physician who just took everything down to first principles. And I just loved it. And that got me into serious trouble when I did ITU jobs after that. But, but that understanding of physiology to apply it to medicine, I love. So there were lots of people who influenced but neurology in particular, it was Tom Powell, then David Marsden, and then sort of reinforced by people like Andrew Lees. And Alastair Constant, you know, was, was hugely supportive of me when I came to the Cambridge when other people weren't so supportive of me. So did you train in neurology in Cambridge? Yeah, I did. So, but it was a bit of a different system in those days. So I came to Cambridge in 91 to do a PhD. And what I hadn't really twigged was it just seemed to me you just decided where you're going to do a PhD and went and did it and just applied for some money and they gave it to you. And of course, in those days, that's how you did it. I mean, I wrote a two paragraph project proposal to the MRC and they looked at your CV and thought, well, that's all right. You can, you can have the money. But then at the end of that, there was a slight worry because I had to get the registrar job in Cambridge at the end of that in 94. And there was one job. Mm-hmm. And there was someone in that. So the idea was that everyone had to move at the right time. So Nick Wood was my predecessor. And so he had to be out by April 94 <laughs> to allow me to take that job. Because if he didn't move and stayed in that job, there was no other job. So I would then have to apply for a registrar job in North London or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But it seemed to work out. But then at the end of a year of that, Ian Wilkinson, who was one of the, uh, the senior consultants, Annenberg said, you've learned everything you're going to learn here. You need to go somewhere else now. So then I had to apply for a job at Queen Square, which again was a, was a fairly standard path, but you had to wait until there was an opening and the person who was more senior than yourself mm-hmm. had got in. So I did my registrar job a year and a bit in Cambridge. Then I did a year and a half at Queen Square. And then I had to apply for another job. And Alastair Comston told me you needed to do the lecturer job. That's what I needed to apply for. And I said, but there is no advert for the lecturer job and Neil Robertson is in that job. He said, no, but that's the job for you, Roger. And I said, yes, but it doesn't exist. (laughs) So then I got the senior registrar job at Norwich and Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And then I got my fellowship. So it it was a very different system then. So as a junior doctor, you were always applying for jobs. So the moment Mm -hmm. you got a job, you applied for your next one. So, you know, I had my two house jobs. And then I had to apply during my second house job to do my first SHA job at the Brompton. The moment I started the Brompton, I had to apply to do the next job. So you were only as good as the job you were in. There was no mm. rotations in those days. But mm. yes, I mean, so my training was there in Queen Square and Norwich. And it was a beautiful rotation, as it turned out, even though you applied for all the jobs, as you will know. Because mm-hmm. Queen Square, you know, has all the, the recherche, tertiary type cases. So... And middle cerebral artery stroke is an absolute novelty in, in Queen Square. They've never heard of it. Cambridge was a sort of has a lovely hybrid of specialised and standard neurology. And Norwich, you see much more acute as it comes in off the off the street. So, so it was a great combination. And people were very free to let you run your own show because I was of the last generation that had done lots of medical training, been a medical registrar for two years. 
And in the late 80s and 90s, you ran the show. You never saw the consultant. They never came in. And as I probably said before at Kingston, when I was on call, you did it all. So gastroscope, devaricies, colonoscope, bronchoscope, liver biopsies, renal biopsies, central lines, pacing. So you could do everything as a medical registrar. The only thing you couldn't do was neurology because we didn't have a CT scanner at all. So you couldn't scan anybody. <laughs> mm. So, but but yeah. So that was my that was my training, really. And would you say your training in neurology was more experimental than it is now? So I think I think was it more experimental. I think it was more. I mean, there was much less evidence base for what you did. So mm-hmm. I certainly remember when I went for the senior registrar job at Norwich. One of the questions I was asked of what's evidence based medicine was the first time I'd ever heard of this in ninety. Uh, 97 I think 96 and I was saved by Chris Allen who was on the interview panel who said what on earth is that we don't have evidence we just do things don't we and 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 so I think you were much more free to explore doing what you wanted to do there were many less things to know about it seems to me Mm. and so there were quite clearly masses of conditions we missed in the 90s which you know, nowadays are fairly standard cases. So uh, you were left much more on your own. The system was, so the advantage of my whole training was that within no time at all, you were entirely on your own. So Thomas Mm. is ITU. I was the SHO running the ITU, a 14 bed ITU. Ron Bradley didn't like anaesthetists. So they were only allowed to come and intubate and then leave. So they weren't allowed to, to do anything. There was no registrar. There was no senior registrar. There was just Ron and you. And so at the weekend, you would be there Friday to Monday lunchtime, Friday morning to Monday lunchtime on your own running all of the patients, 14 incredibly sick patients. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a bit of a sink or swim, really. So you become very confident and experienced very early on, and you're used to making decisions and living by those decisions. And it relies on the fact you're sensible enough to know when you really are not sure what's going on and you will seek advice but you will also if you're a bit unsure you'll probably get on and do it and that sort of spilt over so then you go on to be a medical registrar where as i say you you're left here and then as you become a neurology registrar i just assumed it carries on the same you know in the times i was on call as a neurology registrar for three years i don't think i ever phoned the consultant once about a case I mean, I may have phoned them a couple of times telling their private patients to come in out of courtesy, but, you know, seeking advice was not something you would do. And that's not because I was terribly arrogant, but you just felt that was my job to try and sort these things out. And our patients, you would do the mm-hmm. same. So you learn very quickly and you sort of progress with your own experiences, really. And and it wasn't that you weren't supported. You, it's just that's the way it, it, it operated in those days. The disadvantage of that is, I think, if you weren't, if you didn't have self-confidence, you could end up feeling a bit anxious. And so I think, you know, certainly in, the, in my day, there were a lot of very good junior doctors who never made it through the system because they felt they couldn't cope with the stress of it. Really. And so you did some research in Cambridge. What, what was your research in? So I came to Cambridge to do my research in 91 to 94 because I wanted to work on brain repair and transplants to the brain. So I came to Cambridge because I, was, I thought repairing the brain with cells and regenerative medicine was the future. So that's what I decided I wanted to do. So I came to Cambridge specifically to do that. I didn't come to Cambridge to do neurology. And to be honest, I didn't even know who Alastair Compton was when I first went to see him. I just had come to Cambridge to, to do this research. So that's why I went, because there was nowhere else to do it, really. And I remember then when I went in my training, I went to see David Marsden to get some advice on my career. Mm-hmm. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, regenerative medicine, that's what I want to do. I want to repair brains. And that's what I want to be uh, a consultant in, in neurology. He said, no, no, I mean, what what are you actually going to do? I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. He said, so you're going to be a moving sort of specialist. I said, no, 
I'm going to do <laughs> restorative regenerative medicine, which will apply to movement disorders, but I'm not going to be a movement specialist. This is my own field that I think we can we can work on. So so that at one point led me to think about not doing neurology but doing rehab mm. because I thought this is where we could probably do it, but I just it just wasn't for me. Okay. So what was your PhD in Roger specifically in regenerative medicine? So it was on adrenal transplantation. Mm-hmm. So there was this idea in the 80s that you could replace the lost dopamine cells in Parkinson's by using the adrenal medulla because it produces uh, catecholamines. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. trying to show you that some of the variable results related to how much cortical tissue there was, which changed the differentiation of the chromatin cells. And that didn't really get very far, I wouldn't have said. And then I uh, moved on to more fetal dopamine cells and mm-hmm. repairing the brain with that and trying to understand. So one of the projects we did, James Fawcett was the other person who did it, and James is brilliant. So we did a whole series of experiments where we were showing that if you grow cells in three dimensions, they don't behave the same way as if you grow them in three, two dimensions. So this was, now everyone's into organoids and all this stuff. But I mean, in the 90s, we used to get little dialysis tubes, fill them up with cells, plug the ends with super glue, and then put them in these rotating cultures. So they were 3D cultures. They mm-hmm. weren't quite organoids, but they weren't vastly different and demonstrated that the, the behavior of cells was very different. So that the so modeling systems was very important to look at the results. And then we were looking very interested in extracellular matrix and how that stopped outbreaks of fibers from transplant. Do you still give the part 1B lectures for undergraduates? I should never forget those because the first series of lectures I gave, I thought, this is what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a handout which has lots of gaps in it. And you fill in the gaps as I go through my talk. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and you got about, you know, one out of 10 for your talk at the end of the term because everyone just wanted the entire handout. So I used to do a few of those, but I don't do those anymore. I still do part two regenerative medicine lectures. I remember thinking it was a bit of a gamble because and when I went to Queen Square, I remember feeling a bit vulnerable on this because, you know, I'd be going up against people who'd done uh, an MD or a PhD in PET imaging and epilepsy. And you still think it's so much more obvious, whereas they say what you've done. I thought, oh, I've stuffed a few adrenal glands into the brains of rats and try to look at dopamine cells and you know you sort of think yeah so what so I always felt there was a slight worry that my research didn't fit into mainstream neurology so how would it be seen to be relevant for my career but you but actually people were just sort of accepting the fact you were a bit bit odd once you do what you did but you seemed like a reasonable chap who could do neurology and that would be fine. How did you make those two streams work or run in parallel they're so far apart from each other I've been very interested in Parkinson's disease. For I've been very interested in the basal ganglia. So, so when I was in, mm. as an undergraduate, I was very interested in the role of the basal ganglia, you know, the role in pain and selective attention. And that obviously then took me into the realm of Parkinson's and Huntington's disease. And then that took me onto regenerative medicine because that was the obvious places in which these these types of approaches were being used. Mm-hmm. So it naturally led me into that area of clinical and basic research. But I was also very struck by David Marsden, you see, who, who was a master of everything. I always wanted to be somebody who could stand up in a science forum and people would respect you and stand up in a neurology forum and people would respect you. And I also didn't want to be too restrictive in what I did. And I mean, the trouble is, as I get older, you worry that you're slightly losing your touch with things and you can't remember it and you can't be the complete neurologist that you were when you were at your stake. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, I used to love the, just knowing everything. So I used to love knowing the entire brachial plex. I used to love to know all the causes of progressive myoclonic epilepsy. And of course, this was in a days before the internet. So you couldn't just Google this. You, you, know, you had it. You had it or you didn't. And of course, 
ultimately they're pointless because you, all you need to do is say whether someone's got progressive migraine epilepsy and just Google it and see what they've got and work your way through the list. I always wanted to make sure that, that you could that you could train properly in everything. So whilst I wanted to be like David Marsden and be a professor at 32, I realized I was 32 and I was still in my PhD. But if you wanted to train properly, you were going to have to do quite a few years of general neurology and you're going to have to do a few years in the lab. So I became a consultant in 98. 99 so i was 30 whatever it was 37 38 mm -hmm. by which time i'd done you know, house jobs two years shos one and a half years medical registrar two and a half years of a neurology registrar full-time and i was now in my fellowship following my phd and you realized it was going to take you a time to get there and the challenge has always been after that what can you honestly bring to the table mm. that makes you credible and i i think as i've got older as i was saying I can't really, I've never been a movement sort of specialist, even though everyone thinks I'm a movement sort of specialist because I do Parkinson's Huntsies. I mean, I know about Parkinson's Huntsies, but I'm not a movement sort of specialist. So you send me a wacky movement, I can have a go at it, but that's not my field of expertise. And I, I feel as years have gone by, I've become less of a general neurologist. And that's probably true of the field of general neurology, to be honest. I think it's become more and more specialized. Mm. When I was a registrar, we didn't have all these antibody-mediated diseases. So, mm. so you know, neuroimmunology was MS and people who had funny things that responded to steroids and that was about it. Stroke, you had a stroke, bad luck. So you didn't need to have a huge amount of expertise in this. Whereas now if I had a stroke or I had something that was immunologically wrong my brain, I wouldn't want me to look after it. And I probably wouldn't want a general neurologist to look after it. So mm -hmm. so I've had to slightly change what I've done over the years and accept that you can't do what you aspire to do. And I can't be the complete neurologist anymore, but I can still just work in the areas that I enjoy. And the principles that you learned, you can still apply, even if you're not quite up to speed. As you've discovered, Trini, you have to try and apply some principles, even if you get them wrong. Well, I think knowing your neuroanatomy, and because there's so many specialists around these days, you can always sort of diagnose to a certain extent and send them to a specialist clinic. I think that's true. I think, you know, I was saying to the medical students this evening, I was, I was teaching, I said, the fundamental thing you only need to know in medicine is if they've got a problem. That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. Because once you know they've got a problem, you will go searching until you find the answer. Mm. And I think the same is true of neurology. You know what you know. It's knowing what you don't know. So I think it's the arrogance of assuming that because I don't know what this is or make it or jumping to conclusions, that's when you go wrong. Mm. When you say, I, I don't quite know what this is, but I know somebody who does. And so sort of going back to your research career, so you've mentioned about the adrenal transplants. How has stem cell or regenerative medicine over the last 20 odd years that it's coming up to now that you've been involved in. How do you think that's evolved and where do you yeah. see it going in the future? You probably get asked this question well, frequently. No, I mean, sometimes people ask you about research. What should you do about research? And so one thing I always tell people with research is pick an area that you're passionate about, that you're interested in and stick at it. And during your time, there will be a point at which everybody thinks it's the most important subject in the world and you are flavor of the month. And there will be other times where people think it's completely of historical interest only. And I can't believe anyone's still working in that field. So if I look at, you know, brain repair and cell, re cell replacement, mm -hmm. then when I started in the 90s, that's where it all was. So people were very excited about this. This was the future of neurology and Parkinson's disease mm -hmm. and Huntington's disease as well. And then all the trials came out in the late 90s, early part of the century, that showed that they didn't really work, caused side effects. So when I came back into research in the late 90s, and then when I transitioned from that into my sort of university lecturer post, 
it was dead. I mean, people, mm. early part of this century, it was deemed to be a field that was completely pointless. I mean, people were excited by stem cells, but the idea of stem cells for regenerative medicine in the brain had slightly fallen by the wayside. And then, you know, the discovery of iPS cells in 2006-7, making embryonic stem cells, dopamine cells, suddenly became much more exciting 10 years ago. And now it's currently very fashionable. In 10 mm. years' time, mm -hmm. it won't be. It'll be gene editing, which was all the mm. fashion in the 90s and comes in cycles. So it does change a lot. I think one of the things which is slightly undervalued, which I always tell people, is very important is is if you can truly truly bridge the science and the and the clinic that is a great thing to do because you can have conversation one of the things i love about my job is i can talk to some of the greatest scientists in the world and they're interested in what you say so yesterday i was talking to somebody about development and fetal tissue and you know they're absolutely brilliant I mean, they have mm. techniques and technologies and will answer questions which I couldn't even dream of doing. But I feel terribly privileged that I can help in some way and they actually have some respect for me. And similarly, I like the idea that, that you know, I can still hold my own in neurology, but I can also tell them how we're going to translate that into the clinic and the challenges that that will present and then how we can better do that. So I think it's great if you can bring those two together, accepting what you're not going to be. I'd love to be a you know, brilliant general neurologist, like in our part of the world, people like uh, John Thorpe, for example. But I don't do enough of it, and that's not what I can do because I can't do everything. So you just have to accept what you can do and enjoy what you do and try and do the best you can in that area and always be learning. So that was the other thing David Marsden, I always remember, used to do this thing called the book round mm -hmm. where he would pick a topic and you would just start talking about it. And, and I just love the fact that he was a man who was, you know, absolute top of British neurology. So so always learning is very important and keeping alive to that. That's why I think trainees, younger people are terrific because they're always challenging you, assuming they don't hold you in too much respect, which is a very bad thing to do. Whatever you've done, there's always something new you can learn. I used to love that about medical students. You'd suddenly I'd be asked a question, you think, yeah, what does happen to the red blood cell at the bottom of the loop of Henley? I mean, it's, it's something seriously wrong because the osmotic gradient there is so high. <laughs> I've no idea what the red blood cell looks like down there, but that is quite an interesting question to think about. So, you know, there, there are lots of things which, which you know, I, I think you've got to keep your mind open to these things. And from the outside, from your perspective, how do you see training now? So I think the strengths of training now is it's much more structured. You could end up, had I, had I an experience with MS, oh, yes, I used to do a clinic for somebody. And what did you learn in that? Well, I learned that the consultant never turned up for the clinic and I had to just wing it mm. uh, with all these kids. So, so there was much less structure to it. So I, I think the structure of it's better. I think people are much more caring. So people are much more interested. And that's not to say that I, I experienced anything other than a very supportive environment. But, but, you know, I was probably fortunate in that and it wasn't part of the system. So some people could end up feeling slightly unloved and neglected and slightly dumped upon the time. So I think people are much more supported. There's, the training's much more structured. So I think those are the positive things. I think it's a much harder nowadays because there's so much more to do and there's so much more to learn, I think. And I think trying to keep the team spirit's quite hard. So one of the things I used to love as a medical registrar was when I was on call for the whole weekend from a Friday to Monday, it was, it was, it was way too long really, but that's the way it was and that's what you accepted. But I was on with my SHO and my houseman and my consultant. And we did that weekend together and we did it every three or four weekends. And so you were a team 
one would cover that, you'd do that, I'll do that, together we'll solve this. And I think now it's more, who am I on with this weekend? Well, that's lovely, I know them, but I won't be on with them the next weekend. I think you slightly lose that that teamwork, mm. which which I felt was much more built into the system because it, it was smaller. I, and I think people end up coming out the other end with slightly less experience. And also, you know, the fault of the old system was you were just left to your own, as mm-hmm. I was saying. So you just had to make decisions and get on and do things. Mm-hmm. which meant, of course, when you became a consultant, although you were initially a bit frightened because your name was at the top of a piece of paper in the days when we had names, I mean, you were used to making all those decisions. Whereas now I think people are a little less prepared for that, really. So I think there have been improvements. I think mm-hmm. the thing which always amuses me is you often end up going back to where we began. So when we started in the 80s, <laughs> you know, you did general medicine as a junior, general medicine as a registrar, <laughs> you did some research, and then you did general neurology training with a bit of specialist training thrown in. They say 30 years later, we've invented this brilliant new system, which looks remarkably similar to the system that we trained in, really. And I couldn't see what was wrong with our system. I thought learning general medicine was actually quite good. And people would say, well, what value was there in Roger? And you spend every Wednesday for a year at Kingston Hospital doing uh, colonoscopies, gastroscopies and bronchoscopies. And you think probably none because I wouldn't do any of it now. But it makes you a much more complete doctor. Mm. And it means when something goes wrong with a patient, you won't panic because you have been there. You might not know what the latest treatment is, and you certainly wouldn't want me to do any of those procedures on you now, but but you sort of know you've been there and you have a feel for it. And I think that makes you more confident and, and, and it's more relaxing to be around those people because you sort of feel, I think they know what's going on mm. uh, and they don't panic. And the one thing you never want to do in medicine is panic. Following on from that, what would your best advice be to young trainees like myself? I think never close your mind to anything. I think the biggest struggle, the biggest change I would say, which is partly answering your last question, was that when I started, research was absolutely something you did. You couldn't get into neurology unless you did research. In fact, you know, you only became a neurology registrar once you had a PhD. So if you applied before then, very unlikely to get it. And everyone did research. And so when I first became a consultant and a sort of academic, I used to have quite a lot of people wanting to come and see me to do research. Whereas nowadays, it's very rare that people get in touch. With me. And I don't think it's because our research hasn't gone anywhere. I think that's just true of academic neurology. And, and I think it's a great discipline to do. And I would encourage everybody to think that it's something they should be doing. They might not want to pursue it as a career. So it's not so you, you need to do it in order to get on with your new. I want to be an academic neurologist because most people won't be. But it's a great discipline. And I think people are a bit closed-minded about it. They want to get to be a consultant quickly. They don't want to do all this research. I think there's been a, a slight loss of balance in it. So, so I encourage everybody to do some research because you don't know how you'll respond to it. So mm-hmm. there was one of my very early fellows who, who didn't really want to do research and is now a professor of neurology and tons of research. And he, he would never have done that, I think, if he hadn't come and done a few years of research. He loved it. So I think I, I encourage people... To, to be open-minded about things, to dip into things which might not necessarily you think are what you want to do. None of these are consigning you to a career that you feel you have to follow. And don't rush. I mean, you know, I wanted to be a professor at 32. Well, I was a professor at whatever it was, 52 or something, I don't know, much older. But, you know, I was a consultant. If I'd been a consultant at 32, great, I'd have been a consultant for 35 years. You know, I was a consultant at 38. I'll, I'll be a consultant for 29 years. It's a seriously long time. And it's much better to take your time and get there and feel to be more complete and done everything you want to do. And I think there's too much pressure on people to, to differentiate earlier on or to decide what they're going to do, pursue, you know, established paths. And I think also just 
be open-minded and challenge people. So if you don't understand something, so I don't understand it. Why is that? And, it, you know, if they're good people around, they'll say, now you mentioned it, I've no idea why I'll say that. So I think training is, is good. And so for young trainees, I think, keep enthusiastic, you know, keep looking around. And also I think the other thing you learn is you see people who you want to be like, and you also see people you definitely don't want to be like. Mm. So learning as you go along the characteristics that you would like to adopt into your own practice, knowing the type of person you are. So there was a very nice neurologist, endocrinologist I worked for in my very first job, Clara Lowy at Thomas's, and she knew every single one of her patients. And I just thought, it's mm. wonderful that this person <laughs> knows their patients so well. So don't lose your enthusiasm. Don't learn, lose your personality. Keep open-minded and make sure you're properly trained and do everything. Don't rush. That would be my advice. I think me and Rachel, both of us wanted to ask you this question. Where do you generate your enthusiasm from? You're always bursting full of energy. Well, I don't know is the honest answer. I mean, I've just always been very interested in lots of things. I always loved knowing things and learning things. And so the downside of that is I don't like forgetting things. I find that quite hard, especially as well gets better, you can't retain all this. I suppose I really enjoy learning and knowing things. And if you stand back and think what a privileged position you have to help people, mm-hmm. I find that terribly flattering. And the things that I find terribly touching are still to this day people dropping you little emails or something to say my husband passed away with his Parkinson's or Huntington's disease I just want to say thank you very much for everything you've done over the years to help us and you sort of think well I haven't done very well have I because they're dead but Mm. the fact that they are so grateful for that I think keeping a perspective on who you are what you bring and what you're trying to do is very important and so I've been very blessed with a family that that regard me as somebody that that needs putting down the whole time and I think you need to be very grounded in what you do and, and just realize how privileged you are. And, and I'm just naturally a very enthusiastic person, I think. So, I mean, you know, when we did a bit of on-call, you will always ask me a question. <laughs> I don't know the answer. I might make something up. But it just keeps me thinking. And, and what I find always extraordinary is people ask me things and I'll give an answer and then think, and I make it sound as though I'm very confident by the answer. And then I will think, I wonder if that's true. So then I will go and look it up or I'll spend quite a bit of time researching to see whether I've actually remembered it correctly. And if I've got it wrong, I'll, I'll then have to tell you that I've got it wrong. Well, Roger, I have to say it's always delightful to work with you. And likewise, this evening's been absolutely delightful. Thank you so much for agreeing to um, do this interview with me and Rachel. And it's been great fun.